Okay, the basic premise of localism, of this project to restore America one county at a time, and therefore the basic premise of what I'm calling in general the county rights project, is simply that civil government power should be as decentralized as possible. Now this talk is part one of the issue of that principle, localism. The ideal of freedom and how we once had it in America. Now at the outset we need to acknowledge that states' rights, although a much better uh, solution than all power being centralized in one national government, is not a good enough solution to national tyranny. States' rights are for sissies, as a friend of mine used to say. Uh, give me rather county rights. Okay. That's decentralized power. But lest my libertarian friends needle me, pointing out that counties also can cajole and extort, I prefer to go further and even argue more generally, civil government power should be as decentralized as possible. Okay, if it's possible, get to the, get to the level of the family and even to the level of voluntary communities uh, in terms of civil government, then we should welcome that in society. Now, as we shall see here in this talk, localism and decentralized power is the best expression of freedom in civil government, and it was the way America was originally founded for the most part. This is the way it used to be in America, and it worked. So I would like to discuss briefly localism or county rights in both principle and practice. In principle, limited and localized government is an outgrowth specifically of Christian thinking. Particularly, these are the demands that number one, rulers are not divine, they are themselves subject to a higher law and the laws of the land. Number two, private property is to be protected and instilled with its own governmental powers under law. Number three, social relationships are based on legally binding contracts. And number four, uh, power enables corruption and should therefore be limited, checked, safeguarded in every way possible. So in short, we have a society based on religious faith, property rights, the honoring of contracts, and individual responsibility. All fundamental things derived directly from the Ten Commandments. And of course, with all of these things, is assumed the right to life and the protection of life. To understand these things a little more properly, as it pertains to Western civilization and particularly to American history. We need a little bit of background. What is, after all, a county? Where did such a name come from? Well, the answer to that question is found in the old medieval feudal system of government. Now, feudalism's not a bad word, despite what some people would say. A county was simply the area of land governed by that member of the land-owning hierarchy of nobility called a count. A count owned and governed a county in the same way that a duke did for his duchy, and this was the French name for those ranks, by the way. In England, the equivalent division of land was called a shire, and that's a name that comes from the old Latin word, sire. Now that word means to cut, to divide, uh, we get our word scissors, shears, a schism, all come from the same word. So do the word share and shareholder. Okay, it's a reference to a division or a cut of land that was a, a portion to a particular property owner. 
Now usually, often it was granted by the king or some other higher property owner, but ownership is the basic issue. After the Norman invasion of England in 1066, the usage of the word shire gradually fell out and was replaced by the French equivalent county. Later in the American colonies, there were only six divisions that were ever called shires, and that occurred in Virginia in 1634. A couple years after that, they were renamed counties, and that name stuck in usage throughout America ever since. But regardless of the name, the point stands that our most basic units of government are derived from the original basic units of property ownership. Okay. The basic premise of government is one of private property, and that each owner of property is the governor of what he owns. And of course, under Christian society, this owner's government was not according to his own law, but to God's. So in such a society, ideally, there would be no need for higher governors. But of course, this is neither possible nor practical, yet, we live in a world still marred by sin. Crime exists. Crime needs to be deterred and punished. But crime exists on all levels of life, including those in the higher ranks of government. And so this means that sinful men fill the positions of power as well as the streets, perhaps especially the positions of power. And so we have to seek to have the powers of punishment and force radically distributed through society so that no individual group ever has too much power or ever has power over too great an area. If there's going to be a tyrant or corruption in civil government, it's better to have administrative units as small as possible and as separated and independent as possible so that number one, tyranny is limited to that area and number two, the tyrant has limited resources to work with and so he can't easily spread his tyranny. Number three, people in that limited area can easily escape if they need to. And four, that tyrant is gonna be facing a whole host of surrounding jurisdictions and forces that are ready to intervene, at least for the sake of peace. So when there's another layer of government above that in a federal system, which is usually the case, the local units can then also appeal to higher powers if necessary. Uh, disputes between locals can be settled by private arbitration between them, or if necessary, they can appeal to the higher courts. And if uh, higher powers try to exert tyranny, local governments can resist, and if necessary, they can band together to resist as a group. Now this is exactly, the reason I'm saying this, is exactly what happened in Anglo-American history. During the construction of that famous document, the Magna Carta, in 1215, it was in the midst of feudal society. The kings had, for several generations, gradually moved closer to absolute power. The land barons, the property owners of the time, simply had enough of it. Okay, it was really the wane of the old feudal system, and because of the kings in the midst of that grasping at more power, what we call absolutism was gaining kind of an early strength but it was the representatives of the local landowners who came together and opposed King John's attempts to solidify his power and to raise taxes on them. It was these protectors of private property who drafted the Magna Carta 
and in doing so, they fell back on the old feudal ideas of fixed contractual obligations on the part of each side. The landowners would pay a predictable but tolerable tax to which they agreed, and the king being subject to the powers of law upheld by a representative assembly, usually of the barons themselves and in addition to that, protection of proper courts and things like that. Okay? Th that document is often perceived as some kind of an advance in political theory because it looks like modern representative government uh, you know, in its seminal form, uh, being advanced against ancient monarchy. But it's just the opposite. In reality, it was a conservative document aiming at securing those ancient rights of property owners, the rule of law, the upholding of contracts things that had been established in Christian England for centuries. And as I said, this society is deeply rooted in Christian thinking and biblical law. In the right to life, we see the commandment against murder. It's very simple. In the sanctity of private property, we see the commandments against theft. Okay? In the upholding of contracts, we see the commandment against false witness. And we could easily go on and explore the centrality of the family expressed in the fifth and seventh commandments. We could explore the guarding of property and inheritance against the jealousies of whatever forces there be in the Tenth Commandment. So. Now, at least one modern political philosopher has noted this derivation, and he said this, quote, The limited state is a creation of Christian thinking, particularly of Augustine. It arose from the fundamental experience of the Incarnation, the appearance of God in human form at a definite place and time of human history. Christian thinking about politics was based on a new discovery about the destiny of man lived in order to attain fellowship with God. So in other words, beyond the mere popular idea of Christianity, the idea of limited civil government is based in Christian theology. It's a political development based upon previous theological development, particularly in the history of the church councils. Nicaea in 325 A.D. and Chalcedon in 451 A.D. Because only Jesus Christ is the perfect man, the only God-man, and this means that He alone has the final word in human jurisdiction. He is the only prophet, the only priest, the only king. No mere human government, therefore, has the right to wield supreme or final power on earth, whether in family, church, or state. All people, all rulers have to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. They have to obey His commandments, and they have to love one another as equals before God. And if you want to explore that thought further, you can see my book Manifested in the Flesh, particularly chapters 8 and 9. Now all of these biblical and theological ideas are visible, visible in and fundamental to the old feudal system, despite the flaws that also existed in that system. We don't deny those. But why I cover this and why it's relevant to United States history, which we're about to see, is that the idea of federalism is related directly, both in principle and in name, to feudalism. Federal is related to feudal and refers to governmental relationships based on contractual agreements or covenants between various levels of government. The contract establishes a bond between the parties, for example, between the king and a colony, or the colony and, and its counties below it. And that contract establishes obligations for each party. And it protects each party in regard to those obligations being performed. If those obligations are not met, 
then sanctions can be enforced or the bond itself can be declared null and void. Now it was this very type of covenantal relationship which the American colonists in 1776 argued had been violated in regard to them by their feudal head, King George III. The colonies had each been established with charters which themselves established feudal land grants, recognized the ancient feudal rights of free Englishmen, but things had gradually changed in England. It took decades, but it did change, and by 1688, Parliament had overreached its bounds and was usurping the very absolutism which the king had, had tried to get to at one time. And this began a series of attempts of its own to extract taxes from the colonies. Now, King George, whose duty it was to protect those colonies from outside governmental influences, sat there and did nothing about it. And the colonies rightfully regarded this as a failure on his part, and they in fact considered him complicit in Parliament's acts of aggression and tyranny. And the Declaration of Independence was a feudal document announcing that the king had failed in his end of the contract. And so it became necessary, quote, to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. So the Declaration, aside from the famous phrase of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is all we normally recall of it, goes on to list these two very long trains of grievances. The first list includes abuses on the part of the king himself, and the second list below it, those in which he has, quote, combined with others, namely Parliament to subject us, it says, to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. The colonists considered Parliament a foreign party to their colonial charters, and thus King George's failure to protect the colonies against Parliament's encroaches and taxes was a breach of the governmental contract on his part. And for this failure, and in order to retain the freedoms they expected under the original agreement, agreement, the colonists united with their willingness to fight and die if necessary. Now, this is instructive now to look at the nature of colonial government during that time, especially the time still before the Constitution, but after the Declaration, really any time before, but in order just to get a sense, to see what a decentralized, truly free federal society looks like, especially as derived from the old system of genuine federalism. So, we've seen principle, now let's consider practice of limited government. The fundamental unit of government was the county. The so-called anti-federalists who were writing during the constitutional ratification period argued for local sovereignty on the part of their states, as opposed to the small group of nationalists, who are improperly called federalists, who wanted a strong central national government with the powers of direct taxation, jurisdiction, military power, and so on over the people, and indeed overriding state and local governments whenever they saw convenient. Men such as Patrick Henry uh, rightly argued that a truly federal system would allow only a national government to interact with the states, not with counties, not with townships, not with towns or cities or people or individuals. In a truly federal system, only counties deal with their people. States deal only with counties and above them with the nation. And the Constitution should only deal with the states. Okay. Now, they were obviously fighting for states' rights, these guys, in a particular context. 
but the principle for which they stood goes very much deeper. All the way, I'm arguing, to the county and even smaller if necessary, if possible. Long prior to the Constitution, this is mainly the, the way America was founded. The Massachusetts General Court in 1635 made an act that delegated almost all government authority to the local level. And here's what that act read, part of it. Quote, whereas particular towns have many things which concern only themselves, it is therefore ordered that the free men of every town, or the major part of them, shall only have power to dispose of their own lands and woods with all privileges and appurtenances of the said towns to grant lots to make such orders as may concern the well-ordering of their own towns, to levy and distrain, also to choose their own particular officers as constables, surveyors of highways, and the like. The historian Jefferson Vertenbacher, Thomas Jefferson Vertenbacher, explains that uh, this is how things worked. He says this, quote, Under this act, the town became to the state what the congregation was to the church. Localism in religion, which had become so vital a feature of Puritanism, was to be matched in New England by localism in government. So note two things out of that. Number one, the government was a direct mirror of their form of church government. And number two, their civil government was radically decentralized. Now, this system, like I said, was related directly to the old English feudal arrangements. Although in the New England congregational period, uh, the Congregationalists delegated even greater powers to the local level than did most other groups, the, Puritan, or the Presbyterians in New Jersey, for example. But the system was generally true throughout the colonies. And this lasted for two centuries, at least. I mean, remnants of decentralized government lasted at least into the 19th century, uh, when the famous French explorer and observer Alexis de Tocqueville toured the country in the 1830s. He would still leave with the impression, in his words, quote, every village forms a sort of republic accustomed to govern itself. So at the local level, a deciding influence for all forms of local government and culture was, as a federal society would have it, a Christian covenant. Now, some of these were simple. For example, the early pilgrims used uh, a formula like this. In fact, I'm going to quote, quote we, we covenant with the Lord and with one another and do bind ourselves in the presence of God to walk together in all his ways according as he is pleased to reveal himself unto us in his blessed word of truth. And that was very simple. Others, however, were much more detailed, and these are worth reading even at length. One from Northampton, for example, goes on like this, quote, Disclaiming all confidence of or any worthiness in ourselves, either to be in covenant with God or to partake of the least of his mercies, and also all strength of our own to help covenant with him. By relying upon his tender mercy and gracious assistance of the Lord through Jesus Christ, we do promise and covenant in the presence of the Lord, the searcher of all hearts, and before the holy angels and this company, first and chiefly, to cleave forever unto God with our whole hearts as our chief, best, yea, and only good. And unto Jesus Christ is our only Savior, husband and Lord and only high priest, prophet and king. 
we promise and engage to observe and maintain all the holy institutions and ordinances which he has appointed for his church. And as for this particular company and society of saints, we promise that we will cleave unto one another in brotherly love and seek the best spiritual good of each other by frequent exhortation, seasonable admonition, and constant watchfulness according to the rules of the gospel. And the benefits of a society like that uh, are many. Now, for starters, taxation is specifically and only local. No state, no federal agencies have any direct access to your property or income. And now, I don't support a property tax in any way. I think it's a violation of a biblical doctrine of private property. I think that he who is forced to pay a recurring tax on what he owns or otherwise face forfeiture of distrainment uh, does not really own that property. But historically, the institution of the property tax allows us to see where the fundamental unit of government in America really was. And it is one aspect that persists today, and that is the county. The only agency that has the authority to tax you directly on your property is the county. Now, since this system is entirely local, all the aspects of it are tied to a local vote. The level of taxation, the type of taxation, the agents of taxation. The tax officials in most counties are elected officials. These can be voted out, they can be impeached, removed, overridden, defunded, moved away from if necessary. Okay? Taxation is a locally controlled issue. Secondly, in a decentralized society, law is generally local law. There is no issue of having nationalized health care welfare, taxation, military draft, anything else forced on you by distant, disaffected, self-interest legislators. There's no issue. There's no issue if your local county or, or town votes unanimously to display the Ten Commandments in its court, or doesn't, or even to require a Christian test oath to hold a public office. The neighboring counties may not approve of it, but that's the beauty of decentralization. You move to your county, I'll move to mine. You can move two miles and be in a jurisdiction you like better. Or if you like your chances, you can stay in your own and work for political change there. It would sure be easier to achieve change locally than it is today nationally. Okay? Life is so much better when you have three dozen choices within reasonable reach rather than a one-size-fits-all government solution crammed down your throat. Now, localism means both civil law and criminal law are local law. Okay? When criminal law is local, the main law enforcement in society is the county sheriff. The old John Birch Society had this vision with its, quote, support your local police campaign, although I think uh, it appears to me to be taken to the point of a fault, which it can be, but more on that at another time. When criminal law is local, the legislation itself as well as the agents of enforcement and justice are elected. Okay? This is seen in our county legacy. Sheriffs are elected officials. Local judges are elected officials. County commissioners and other local legislatures, directors, whatever else, elected. Now, you remember the old Robin Hood scenario. Remember who Robin Hood's great enemy was? He was the sheriff of Nottingham, and that was our word sheriff comes from the Old English shire, which we talked about a while ago, and the word reeve, which was simply a representative of some sort to the king. 
So the Shire Reeve was the king's agent who was sent to the local shires, the local counties, to collect taxes on behalf of the king. He was an agent of the central government, but not in America. He was a local elected official, accountable to, accountable to his local shire, his local county, susceptible to being removed at the next election. And in times of moral lassitude, when local populations begin to accept corruption and don't vote it out, again, you wouldn't have far to move if you saw it necessary or if it came to that. So in short, when the sheriff is the agent of a central government, you have tyranny. But when the sheriff is a local elected representative, you're a lot closer to a free society. That's criminal law. Civil law also is county law, mostly in that type of society, locally determined. I can assure you, for example, that gay marriage would not be acceptable in my county. There would be no deliberation about it. And the first judge or official who peeped in favor of it would be voted out in a heartbeat, if not impeached on the spot. You know, you could let that liberal joker move out to one of those blue counties on the west coast, but not in our backyard. Instead of having to win a washed out general election, stacked against all the forces of politics and media and big money across the whole country, our grassroots would be the ultimate voice in law and leadership. Your society would reflect your values. Instead of being weaseled by special interests and spineless politicians and activist judges and things like that. Okay. This is a taste of localism, a world in which government is as small as possible. People are generally free. Their societies mirror their own values. Government is accountable. Government is generally unable to spread tyranny. It's based on the Christian concepts of protecting life, protecting family and property and contracts, and holding public officials accountable uh, to the law before God. And this is the only way to maintain a free society. And having such a local focus is the only way I think we will ever be able to restore freedom in America. The focus on Washington and the Supreme Court will do nothing but rearrange the forces of top-down, centralized, tyrannical solutions. States' rights won't even do it, although I'll argue later that it's very important. But we need localism. We need county rights. Now we've seen also that this vision of local government was the original American way. It existed and it worked. So the next question, of course, is if society was so decentralized and free, how did it get lost? And how is it so far lost that we've never really even heard about this history that I've just discussed? Now, while it would be fun to skip from here and go straight to how to get the freedom back, uh, I'm, I would argue that understanding how that freedom was lost is vital to knowing exactly what to undo and preventing it from happening again. So in the next discussion, part two of this topic, we'll talk about how America has grown from a radically decentralized uh, a society, voluntarily settled, free up until about 1780 or so uh, and earlier, to the massive government bureaucracy that we have today, the near police state that it is today. So I'll talk about those things in the next talk.